and welcome to the fifth of our Pension Law podcast. I'm Dominic Harris from the Pensions team at CMS, and together with my friends and colleagues, Vicky Mance and Simon Evans, we've got the pleasure of spending 20 minutes talking you through three discrete aspects of the Pension Schemes Bill. I say discrete aspects because, as it stands at the moment, it's a pretty wide-ranging bit of draft legislation. And indeed, remember that it is still in draft, which means that things may change as it continues to wend its way through Parliament. The bill veers into scheme funding, investment, environmental issues, criminal and regulator powers, and even a new breed of pension scheme in the form of collective defined contribution. With that in mind, it won't surprise you to learn that in a 20 minute podcast, we're only going to touch an outline on three specific things. Firstly, Vicky's gonna scare the life out of you by talking about the criminal sanctions regime. Simon is then going to give you a flavor of how to build a paper trail to avoid problems with the pensions regulator. And then finally, I'll end up by flagging up how this bill impacts on scheme funding and in particular investment choices, which also acts as an opportunity to highlight how important it is to look at both the changes being made by the bill, but also the regulator's DB funding code, which is currently open for consultation. With that in mind, Vicky, over to you. Thank you, Dominic. I'm talking about the new criminal offences being introduced under the Pension Schemes Bill. To provide some context, while the Pensions Act 2004 introduced the regulator and its groundbreaking powers to pierce the corporate veil via imposing contribution notices and financial support directions, in practice, the regulator tends to rely heavily on the threat, rather than the actual practice, of exercising these powers and has only used them a handful of times since 2005. So whilst the bill gives the regulator additional grounds on which a contribution notice may be imposed, once the bill becomes law, we expect that it will be the risk of criminal liability which is more likely to push pensions up the agenda where there is a material event affecting the employer's covenant. In the regulator's determination in the case against Dominic Chappelle in relation to the BHS pension scheme, you can see the regulator's frustration that the pensions issues were not taken seriously or a suitable pensions conclusion reached before the sale completed. Criminal liability under the existing re regime is limited to trustees in specific situations, such as employer-related investment. So to date, individuals with some link to a DB pension scheme have had no exposure to personal liability for their actions in relation to that scheme. All this changes with the bill. The bill introduces various new criminal offences. First, a new criminal offence of avoiding an employer debt. That is, where a person doesn't act or engages in a course of conduct that prevents the recovery of some or all of a buyout debt due from the employer to the scheme, or settles or reduces such a debt, where the person intended the act or course of conduct to have that effect, and they did not have a reasonable excuse for doing so or engaging in the course of conduct, so this offence targets deliberate acts which impact on the employer debt. Second, the new offence of con conduct risking accrued scheme benefits. An offence occurs where the person doesn't act or engages in a course of conduct that has a materially detrimental effect on the likelihood of accrued scheme benefits being received, where the person knew or ought to have known that the act or course of conduct would have that effect and they did not have a reasonable excuse for doing so. So this offence targets acts which have an effect, which may be inadvertent, which may reduce the likelihood of the scheme being able to provide benefits in full. In both cases, the regulator, as the prosecuting authority, can impose criminal liability, including up to seven years in prison and or an unlimited fine. The language of both these offences is familiar from the regulator's existing contribution notice powers. However, the potential scope is much, much broader. Here, where an act falls within the statutory definition of the offence, any person may be guilty of the offence not just those who are associated or connected with the sponsoring employer as under the moral hazard regime. There has been widespread concern that the offence of conduct risking accrued scheme benefits, in particular, 
may prevent companies from carrying out free structuring exercises or from taking steps to save jobs at a weak employer. Professional advisors could even be in scope, whether the actuary setting cash commutation rates on, favor- on terms which are favourable to members, or turnaround professionals involved in turning around the employer before any informal appointment as an insolvency practitioner. Whilst the government has issued statements that there is no intention to interfere with routine business activity, it has also resisted amendments to the bill which would narrow the scope of the offences to reflect the associated or connected test we are familiar with from the moral hazard provisions. We just have to hope that the promised guidance from the regulator on its prosecution policy will provide some clarification. The bill also introduces a new declaration of intent regime which imposes additional notification obligations on the employer and persons associated and connected with the employer, i.e. parent companies and guarantors, to provide more information earlier to the regulator and the DB scheme trustees in relation to any proposed events relevant to the covenant supporting the scheme. This is backed up by a further new criminal events of providing false or mis- misleading information to the regulator, punishable by a fine or up to two years in prison. What is particularly interesting here is the regulator's power to effectively pierce the corporate veil around the sponsoring employer, to look at imposing criminal liability on a wider group of individuals where a decision may impact on the pension scheme as an unsecured creditor of the employer. This is a significant change in approach, being the first time that individual decision makers and associated or connected entities may face individual liability for decisions taken at corporate level which may ultimately reduce the assets available for the UK DB scheme. So stepping back from the detail, what changes are likely to arise from the introduction of these offences and what messages should you take away to consider? Professional advice is likely to be more important than ever. While she may think this is inevitable coming from lawyers, it really is true as a result of the changes being made by the bill. For corporates, the key point to note is that criminal liability may attach to individual decision makers unless pensions are considered and a satisfactory pension solution found much earlier in events such as refinancing, restructurings, significant dividend payments, any events which will have a material impact on the strength of the employer supporting the scheme, with earlier notifications to the regulator and trustees. There should be a greater focus on putting in place a paper trail to provide some protection, a topic that Simon's going to cover in a minute. For corporate groups with a UK DB scheme, it would also be important to educate all decision makers in the wider group, whether in the UK or overseas, on the need to comply with the new regime, particularly the new declarations of intent and the risk of criminal liability for non-compliance. Ignorance is no defence and will not count as a reasonable excuse. Trustees are also in scope of the new criminal offences. For example, trustees who enter into an apportionment agreement could be in scope of the new offence of conduct risking accrued scheme benefits. Trustees who take professional advice and act reasonably in light of that advice will have more protection than trustees who do not, as it is more likely that a defence of reasonable excuse can be established. However, trustees should be mindful that any fines imposed on the corporate or individual trustee cannot be paid out of scheme assets. Legislation prohibits this. Nor can scheme assets be used to insure against these risks. Trustees should raise this concern with their employer to understand whether any employer-funded director's or officer's liability insurance may assist. Trustees may also consider requesting an indemnity from the employer or other group of companies against these specific risks, although much will turn on whether the employer or wider group is able to provide any such support and indeed whether the relevant entity is able to pay up if that indemnity were ever called upon. And now I'm going to hand over to Simon. Thank you, Vicky. My section is targeted at employers and their parents and corporate groups, but it will have some relevance to trustees responding to a corporate transaction and also relevance to other advisors. You've heard from Vicky that there are two new main criminal offences, both of which have a defence of reasonable excuse. We also have civil penalties in relation to the same in the bill, along with two new main grounds upon which the regulator can impose a contribution notice, the employer insolvency test and the employer resources test. 
These sit alongside the existing grounds for the regulator to issue contribution notices. The question is how you can proceed safely with a corporate transaction when there is a defined benefit pension scheme involved. From a corporate perspective, one of the key aspects will be establishing an audit trail. Why are you doing this? Firstly, as a foundation for defence. For example, where the regulator wants to use its civil powers, you're setting out how you've reached the decision. Also, if threatened with criminal prosecution, this can provide evidence of the decision making so that you can demonstrate a reasonable excuse for why you took those actions. It also speeds up the process if the regulator becomes involved. Investigations or even preliminary inquiries can be costly and disruptive. And preemptive action means you can head off having to respond to allegations. You don't have to go back and reconstruct your decision making process. And it establishes your narrative with the regulator when they do get involved. It's also most helpful when all of this takes place before the transaction. Statutory defences to contribution notices require consideration before the event. If you can establish a statutory defence, then it can protect you even if circumstances don't turn out as expected. If you don't consider the issues beforehand, then you will be left exposed to action by the regulator and being forced to take remedial action. In defending criminal charges, it also helps the credibility of your excuse to show that you actually considered this in advance. Otherwise, you may be left just arguing that the scheme didn't suffer adverse effects, which could be more difficult. What are the principles behind recording your decision making then? The statutory defences to material detriment, employer resource and employer insolvency contribution notices all follow the same format. Firstly, you gave due consideration to whether the corporate action would have the effect that gives a reason for the regulator to issue a contribution notice. Secondly, in doing so, you made the inquiries and asked the questions that a reasonably diligent person would have done. Thirdly, if any adverse effects are identified, you took all reasonable steps to eliminate or minimise them. And lastly, after all of this, it was reasonable for you to conclude that there would be no adverse effect. But this defence is about the regulator being satisfied that you did these things. So the key is that you track what you've done. In terms of your advice, a starting point may well be the covenant advisor. So you can understand the impact on the direct and indirect support for the scheme from the business. But getting a clean answer from your covenant advisor is not necessarily the end of it. You need to consider whether there are any follow up questions, if there's other advice which will be required, and what can your advisors propose to deal with any risks they have identified. You should be logging what questions you ask and what advice you take. It can be helpful if you have a member of the deal team who can collate and coordinate these records. At the end of the day, you will want to end up in a position where you can record the final conclusion that the material detriment, employer resource and employer insolvency tests were not met. But this shouldn't be in a legally privileged report because what you want to be able to show, what you want is something that you can show to the regulator. Commonly, um, this is recorded or at least summarised in board minutes so they can be presented when needed. As well as being part of your internal risk management, the, all of this consideration can be the base for your communication to the trustee and the regulator. We have the existing notifiable events regime, but there's also the bit under the bill, a new declaration of intent. We know from policy documents that this is designed to give the trustees and regulator more information from a buyer. Details of timing for giving that declaration of intent and the contents of it are not contained in the bill. This will all be in secondary legislation that's not been published yet, but we can advise on this when we get the detail through. For now though, you should be planning around potentially being required to provide a declaration of intent. 
even if you conclude that the scheme will not be affected and that you don't even need to offer any kind of package of mitigation, you may be still required to notify the regulator. And it can be helpful in any case to provide this rationale that you think there was no issue to head off trustee and regulator queries. The last thing that you may want to be recording matters for is for the purposes of clearance from, from the regulator. It hasn't been so common in recent years for companies to seek clearance because in many circumstances they can already be covered by the statutory defences. We may see more of this, however. Certainly the government and parliamentary committees were pushing for an increase in the number of clearance applications. In practice, the regulator will be expecting to see in your clearance applications the same sort of decision-making process and the same sort of conclusions. So all of this should be part of your planning process, even when you think you're going to make a formal clearance application. What are the takeaways from this? Record keeping and an audit trail is about preventing regulatory action or at an early stage of an investigation, getting the regulator satisfied so they back off. You need to show active consideration and having taken advice. You also need to think about, are there any follow-up questions that you should be asking? All of this should be collated so that you have it if you need to respond to the regulator. And lastly, this can also form a base for your communications with the trustee and any required notifications to the regulator. I will now hand over to Dominic, who is going to talk about the new scheme funding code operating alongside the bill. Thank you, Simon. The media has naturally concentrated on criminal sanctions, but as you may have spotted, there are some interesting issues around the interaction of funding and investment in the bill as well. Notably, there's an obligation for trustees to come up with a strategy on how to deliver pensions in the long term. The background behind this is a worry from policymakers that there are too many DB schemes that are fully funded on an ongoing technical provision basis, but that still have big Section 75 deficits that wouldn't be paid if an employer suffered an insolvency event. The bill looks to address that and imposes a requirement on trustees to look at a longer time horizon and to get a scheme to self-sufficiency funding. How does that work? Well, the bill asks you to come up with a funding and investment strategy, a FIS, which includes the funding to be achieved and the investments held at some future date. The scheme's technical provisions on evaluation will then be calculated in line with that FIS. Following on from this, trustees will also need to produce a statement of strategy, a more public facing document which sets out the FIS, but also includes the trustees' views on things like whether the strategy is being successfully implemented, the risks in its implementation and reflections on significant decisions taken. Importantly here, as drafted, this is all now a matter that in most cases will require the agreement of the sponsoring employer, unless your valuation usually only requires employer consultation. Clearly on first glance, this appears to give an employer additional say over a trustee's investment strategy. But the real sting in the tail here is a proposed amendment to Section 231 of the Pensions Act, that also appears to allow the regulator a significant say. Just as the regulator can already impose a schedule of contributions under existing legislation, so it will also be able to direct the trustee to revise the FIS in accordance with its direction. So on the face of it, the regulator can come in and demand that a trustee moves out of, say, risky investments. Now, new regulations will flesh this out. But the other key document to look at is the regulator's own DB funding code consultation, as that sets out how the regulator is going to approach this aim of achieving low employer dependency. Again, a key part of this is investment. And as a snapshot, the regulator only wants a level of investment risk that is supported by employer covenant. 
To the extent that actual investment risk isn't supported, it would expect trustees to take steps to reduce that level of investment risk. The consultation also comes with a process change, and it's there that this risk will be evaluated, either through a fast track or bespoke valuation route. For fast track, a trustee will need to tick all of the regulator's boxes on things like discount rates, investment risks, and the length of any recovery plan. But in return, you'll benefit from minimal intervention from the regulator. Bespoke is the other route, where a trustee can't or doesn't want to comply with fast track. And this is where that additional investment risk will be permissible if it's supported. But in this route, you'll need to convince the regulator that the bespoke valuation is acceptable. If a trustee can't, then that's where the regulator has the power to determine the fizz and to start to impose itself on trustee decision making. So how much of a risk is that? Is the regulator really going to be imposing your investment strategy on you? Well, the first thing to say is that trustees can take some comfort from how often the regulator has used the other existing powers contained in that section of the Act. And the answer is not once. The regulator doesn't see that as a problem and rather claims that it's the threat that gives trustees incentives to change their ways. And that's enough. Now, clearly, past performance doesn't guarantee what will happen in the future. But to my mind, this does suggest that the regulator is going to be careful and targeted when using its new powers. Secondly, we haven't yet got the full story. The regulations are still to come and even the bill itself is still being changed. Indeed, an amendment passed by the Lords last week would require the regulator to have regard to a number of factors, such as the affordability of contributions to employers and to ensure that schemes that would otherwise not close do not as a result of having to take unnecessarily risk averse investment positions. So perhaps this power will yet be softened. The funding code consultation might also allow us the luxury of thinking that it's unlikely that the regulator will be using this power to rid schemes of what it thinks are riskier investments. First, the draft code explicitly allows a trade-off between risk and support. And I suspect that investment risk versus covenant is something that most trustees look at already when making these sort of decisions. Secondly, it recognises that all schemes are different and that, for example, immature schemes can assume and take more investment risk. Thirdly, the regulator, when looking at funding, must already have regard to minimising any adverse impact on the sustainable growth of an employer. So an excessively liberal use of these new powers, raising the cost of schemes to employers, sits rather awkwardly with that goal. Indeed, and finally, it's worth remembering that there are also external factors beyond just the pensions world. The regulator was in the last decade under pressure from government to promote economic and investment growth. Mark Boyle, the then non-executive chairman of the regulator, said the prevailing environment at the time was to be more business friendly, ensuring that corporate growth was not materially disadvantaged by intervention on pension schemes. In contrast, as a result of cases like Carillion, the legislative and regulatory environment changed again in the second half of the decade and became more interventionist, notably with the introduction of this bill. Today's world is now coloured by COVID and the pressure on the business world that is brought to bear. So perhaps that too will colour how the regulator uses this power. Now that concludes this podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll have one or two more podcasts on aspects of the pension schemes bill to come, but the next one will look at the pensions implications of the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act, and I hope you'll join us for that. Thank you.